Welcome to Four Scores. I'm your host, John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. I recently sat down with John Powell to talk about his latest project, The Call of the Wild. His Academy Award-nominated work can also be heard in How to Train Your Dragon, as well as the Ice Age films and Solo, A Star Wars Story. We spoke in his state-of-the-art studio near Los Angeles about his latest score, his approach to film work, and why there was a dog on the scoring stage during the recording of Call of the Wild. John, thanks for having us over today. A pleasure. Tell us first how this movie came to you and why you wanted to do it. Well, Chris Sanders I'd worked with before on the very first How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, That's when I met him, that's when I had this wonderful experience writing music for that film. And here he comes back with a dog movie. (laughs) And I just couldn't resist working with Chris again. I mean, he's, he's he's very inspiring. He's the director, along with Dean Dubois, who was the, there was two of them on, on How to Train Your Dragon, who kept me looking for the emotion of the flying scenes in Dragon, in Dragons 1. And uh, I, I thought, I want to I wanna work again with somebody who's that inspiring. I, I also, you know, thought, you know, dogs and... Uh, what about dogs? Well, I, I have lots of dogs. Well, not lots of dogs, but I have, you know, two standard poodles... Uh, and now Winston, who's a unknown. And when the first kind of script came in, I read the script and, and I loved the script. And having not ever read the book, because I'm English and the only people who have read the book are Americans who are forced to do it under, <laughs> under the law. Give us a little bit of the basics of The Call of the Wild. It's a story of a dog that's stolen from a very comfortable home in, in uh, San Diego. In those days... Uh, we're talking about the beginning of the 20th century. There was this huge gold rush. One of the most valuable commodities was very powerful big dogs for the dog sleds. Um, that's how everything got moved around in those days. So it was part of that industry. They needed these big dogs. You have a big dog who's goofy and silly and just a family dog down in San Diego. And unfortunately, someone sees him as a valuable commodity and steals him. He gets sent up to the north of America and Canada, and he goes from being a comfortable pet to being um, a working animal, at best. Uh, and the book has a lot more, you know, cruel situations. I think there's a few in our film to really put it in context of, of uh, the transition that this animal makes from a very simple life to a, a very, in the end, fulfilled life. And that's what the call of the wild is really, is him finding his true nature by the battling the elements and battling the stupidity of mankind. He eventually finds this uh, wonderful character, John Thornton, who's played by Harrison Ford. Early on, they sent me what's called a, a previs, which is basically the whole film made up with just very, very rough kind of animation looking and even they do this for lots of films Uh, marvel films are all made like that now because the special effects have to be organized so much you have to know what every shot's going to look like and all Um, the dogs here were going to be cgi all animals were the only people who weren't were the people early on i sat down just to look through it and my dogs just were transfixed by it 
These were very simple looking dogs on the screen, but they had sound effects and there was barking and there was grumbling and all the usual sounds that dogs make. And so between, you know, Poodles enjoying it and Chris Sanders and, uh, and it being a wonderful script, I, I thought I've got to do this. I guess we should say that the star of the movie, despite the billing on screen, isn't really Harrison Ford. No, Harrison, who was entirely not CGI, uh, although, so just so in case you know that there's noises in the background, and that's basically a poodle scratching himself. <laughs> because, We're fine with it, by the yeah, way. <laughs> because this whole studio, even though it's called Five Cat Studios, is entirely inhabited by dogs. <laughs> so it was a it was a shoe in that I had to do a dog movie. Yes. But Buck is really the star. It's his story, right? It, it, of course. That, and that's the f this is really the first time anybody's been able to tell the story that way. If you're trying to use trained dogs, which human can you base the story on rather than putting it completely through the eyes of the dog? But this time, they really had much more freedom to, to make Buck the hero as he is in the book. Mm, yeah, so this is really a more authentic version of the London novel. Yes, in certain ways. In, in other ways, uh, they've had to get rid of a lot of the... It's it's a it's a it's a harsh novel, yeah. Uh, even for the day, you know, and it certainly uh, would frighten the hell out of children. So, does the music in any way reflect the harshness of the story? What, one of the things we did, I think, is we didn't overscore. So, there's a lot of space in the score. In this case, one of the ways I felt we could get much more. Um, of a harsh tone was really to not have music sometimes. And so in a way, that's as much planned as the actual cues were. It meant that when the music came in, it would actually do the opposite of that. It would warm with the character. The music was really focused on, on Buck. What was he feeling? What was he thinking? And so as a, a character with a warm heart, the music would come in and it would take away from the harshness of the environment. So we tried to pick carefully what these moments of, um, of natural sound were about. And the fact that there was nothing there would lead you to feel um, the reality. So what kind of music did this project need uh was it easily arrived at no it was really hard if you are moose sorry we're getting a lot of conversation <laughs> with the moose are you talking about the film moose <laughs> moose lie down lie down lie down <laughs> sorry about that he minds he's good look at him wow i haven't found any film easy you're trying to find out what the film is, and the, or the film is trying to tell you. I prefer to think of it that way. And in this case, it, obviously, yeah, it's set in America, but everyone in the world loves dogs. So I was just letting my kind of freak fly a little bit on what I thought was dog music, rather than just Americana. But yes, I did use banjos. Uh, and I did use accordion, although that's an instrument that could be found anywhere in the world. So, you know, and I probably use quite you know, Celtic style sometimes, but a lot of the people in that story are immigrants. Uh, and as an immigrant myself, I, I just, I pull music from anywhere that I've ever heard it. So, it, so it, it required a kind of folk music approach, would you say? 
I think there's a simplicity to folk music that works well with what seems like a very natural story. Uh, I think if you get too sophisticated, too classical, with some, you know, natural imagery, it feels a little, um, you know, pretentious. It's not like a fantasy film where you really use the orchestra to sort of add to the the colours that you're seeing. This was very natural, so I really did have to be a bit. I guess I had to sound more like what we all think natural music is, and I think folk music is is part of that language. And I remember we were talking before, and you pointed out and quite accurately, I think that the most of these instruments, the fiddles, the banjos, the guitars, the accordions, the mandolins were portable. You could yeah. take them in yeah. these out-of-the-way places. This is true. Even the, like the harmonium uh, was a common instrument that people would kind of trek up to various places. We should probably say what a harmonium is. A harmonium is like a little pedal-based, you know, it's got bellows in it, so it's a little organ. Basically, it's like a little pipe organ, but it's not. It's using reeds, like an accordion, but it has bellows, like an accordion, but you do it with your feet. So you can play um, as if you were playing on a, a small organ, but it, it, and and they they really sound very sweet. I, I, I've always liked them. Uh, it, it makes these really nice kind of soft chorale moments. They were all portable. They were the kind of things that you could take with you if you were trekking to find a better life. And they would be instruments that would you know allow you to sort of commune with others or at least commune with yourself, keep yourself amused. Uh, in the film, John Thornton has a, you know, a harmonica. And that was the only one that I couldn't really use because it was in the film as a character. Sure. Uh, so I didn't want to use it in the score. Although, that, again, that's some of my favorite scores have a harmonica in it. But in a way, this, you're, the kind of music that you're using sort of grounds it in, in a kind of reality, I think. It's, it's always very dangerous to talk about this in film music. Reality is immediately killed by having music. I mean, um, but there again, reality is killed by having a camera. So it's a question of how quickly do people sort of believe the, the language of the film. I think this one, we really did tone it down a lot, tone down the musical kind of expression to try not to break too much of the feeling of nature. And so how would you say it helps the storytelling to have a score of that style? Was this the right way of doing it? I don't know. I mean, you could have done it, I guess I could have done the score 10 different ways. Which one is right? Well, it's all about the collaboration with, with the filmmakers and, and hopefully the film itself telling us. As you work through the process, all of these factors come into whether everybody involved feels that this is the language of the film. If it's the right way of doing it, I think uh, history and time will tell. <laughs> There's also not a lot of dialogue in this movie. There's a lot of big scenes where there really is uh, either n not people or people are in the background. And so I wonder, does that mean that there needs to be music or there needs to be a certain kind of music in those scenes? That was always one of the interesting things about the project. It wasn't dialogue heavy. Um, certainly there's a lot more dialogue in the original script because we, we introduced John Thornton a lot earlier now and he's, he's kind of uh, a narrator. There's lots of scenes where he's writing letters so you understand that this is a narration, uh, an inner monologue as it were. 
there's lots of scenes where not a lot is said and, and also it really does need to evoke you know the inside of Buck's brain so if I did anything I always just try to write music for what Buck was feeling in every scene every scene that I felt needed music and every scene that you know it seemed to work in it's really Buck's point of view so it's even though we never actually hear what he's thinking we, we don't hear Buck's voice you are in fact Buck's voice I was trying to be yeah um, I mean yes it's a dog but it's really us I mean it's 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 your classic hero story it's a coming-of-age story it's a, a character who is changing who's transitioning however you want to look at it I mean when I first saw the film my son was going away to college and I, I, I saw it as as his transition you know as leaving home and arriving at college and the, the, the massive change he was gonna to have to go through um, some of it painful but would he find his way into the next part of his life through college, I hope so. Sure. And, and that's really what Buck's doing. He's, he is admittedly forced into a new life, but he goes from being just a goofy dog to being, to being an authentic character by the yeah. end of the movie. And kind of a hero. Yes, well, we're all, we're all heroes of our own stories, <laughs> and so that's why we identify with these films and these, this storytelling. All art is there to tell us the similar story that everybody in the universe has ever had in their lives. And that commonality is what we enjoy in storytelling and what, what resonates. Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including John Powell's scores for Call of the Wild and Solo, A Star Wars Story. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. So there is an orchestra... Uh, here, in addition to the folk instruments we've talked about, and there's also a choir. Yes, there's there's some choir as well. I, I tried a few things, and the one that worked best in the movie was a very kind of a gospel sort of uh, humming style. It, it immediately brings a lot of emotion. It's a simple sort of technique. Uh, this, this soulful humming in the background, and so I, I use that in a few places. Uh, sorry, the dog wants out now. Should we uh, yes. let him out? Yes. Let me actually no, Moose. Go and sit down. <laughs> okay, you're just going to sit there. Okay, fine. Well, look, just get on mic. Get on mic. So, um, speaking of dogs, yes. Did being a dog lover help in any way as you were writing the score? I think it helps in life always. I mean, yes, of course. Um, maybe they encouraged me to do it. Uh, but as I say, a dog movie—is it a dog movie or is it a human movie? It's really a human movie. The the hero character is me when I watch it. I don't think dogs watch it quite like that. I think they watch it just for the basics of the imagery and the noise. Does it help a score of this nature to have American players playing American folk instruments? One of the things about doing a very American tale, one of the things that I was able to do was work with some of the great players here in Los Angeles who really can nail that stuff like I can't even think it. I sense, I have the feeling of what they can do 
but you know if you get the right player they just suddenly make you know what is a very you know normal tune into something that really makes sense with the movie and makes sense with the style we I had I got some fantastic musicians on this and I had small ensembles and and big ensembles and you know not just the orchestra at one point we had 12 guitarists uh, who were playing 12 banjos or 12 mandolins or 12 acoustic guitars you know the sound of 12 mandolins was fun and having you know there's a couple of moments in the film where they're really doing this kind of very western what I would call western you know, strumming. And you've heard that many times in, in music and films with maybe two guitars, but 12 guitars, it was, very, it was great, like yeah. a guitar orchestra of Western guitarists. You have to rely on musicians to really give you that, um, that extra part of the music that you feel and you know it's out there somewhere, but you can't quite write down. And, and that's the, the, one of the joys of, of getting to work with such incredible players. Just, it brought it to life. When I saw the movie recently, okay. I, I was struck by how much the music often felt like dancing to me. It seemed like there was a rhythm and emotion to, uh, to so much of the score. Uh, can you talk about that? Was it sort of intentional to sort of make it dance-like in parts? I, I have a, a habit which has now become completely sort of second nature to me of um, treating all music as dance, I think, even when it's very slow. <laughs> um, it's some modality that I've picked up over the years as a child, I think, of listening to a lot of ballet music and a lot of classical music. So dancing, I think, is not literally what I'm doing, but the dance form, you know, or the feeling of life being a dance uh, is perhaps what I've always have tried to evoke accidentally because that's how I've always heard music. And I don't mean it to be that way, <laughs> really. Um, I think it's just, I like that form and I, and I see that there's a kinetic energy to dance music, as it were, you know, whether you're talking about 17th century dance music or 20th century dance music. It just makes me feel like the scene is moving forward and that, you know, life's a dance. And it works for the film. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, it really, it either propels the film forward or it, it keeps it lively. Yeah, it certainly, there's an energy to it that I've always liked. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, dog? Just sit. <laughs> Lie down. Lie down. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. He's adorable. So, we've talked about your dogs. Yes. We should talk about Chris Sanders' dog. Yes, Buckley, yes. Now, who's Buckley? Buckley is a, a rescue dog that Chris and his wife, Jessica, found, uh, who happens to match exactly in the description of, of the original Buck in the, in the book. And he is basically the, the model for Buck in the movie. You know, they scanned him or you know sort of modeled the animation character on Buckley what's great is that you can turn up to a, a meeting here or a session with the orchestra or the dub station and there in walks what appears to be the star of the movie wow <laughs> he's slightly smaller and lighter than the buck in the movie and it is very weird to see him in real life and did he visit the studio here he did yes and they all went out played in the 
in the yard, just so they all got to know each other. And then they came into the studio and, uh, you know, obviously there's a territorial part of, <laughs> of all dogs that you have to be careful about. Um, but uh, he's, he's, he's very sweet. He loves to play. Um, and Buckley came to the recording sessions. He did, yeah. And, of course, that stops everything dead for quite a while because <laughs> all the musicians just want to cuddle him uh, <laughs> but that was okay um, you know I wasn't having to pay so, uh, <laughs> thanks. but I'm sure the orchestra just loved him yes of course yeah absolutely it's much better than just looking at me on the po- podium <laughs> uh, what would you say was your biggest challenge on this movie it's, it's the same challenge I always have uh, which is trying to be a collaborator and so you make music and you look at it and you go, okay, well, this, does this fit the film? Um, and some of it will and some of it won't. And you need to cast aside the stuff that doesn't, whether or not you love it. And that's always hard. Um, and then when you really are writing a picture, sometimes you can have this music as it comes, as it's sort of flowing, it flows and it, it's going in a direction and you know that that direction is not going to be useful. Mm. So you have to stop it before it even goes there, because otherwise you're going to break your own heart. (laughs) And so you must turn it and face it in the right direction for the film. And so that's the the challenge of the pragmatic side of film composition. It's film music is a pragmatic art. It's not somewhere to just allow the music to be whatever it wants. And but sometimes that's the inspiration of the film is is the key to the music. And that's how you get good scores, I think. So you don't do a lot of films. You do, what, maybe one or two a year? Yeah, yeah. And I'm a little limited as to what I can do as well. I I think I'm not great at dark things. Um, But at this point in my life, I've now got to a point which is very selfish, and it's like, okay, I think the thing I'm best at is joyful music. So I just need to find projects that need that. I was looking at your resume this morning, and it seems like you've done something like 60 movies or so. What would you say has best prepared you for where you are now in your career? Well, I think, I think uh, the East Sussex Youth Orchestra. Tell us about that. So from about the age of 14, maybe 13 or 14, I was in an orchestra. It was basically anybody who was moderately good in the county of East Sussex were kind of picked out. And we just happened to be very lucky because he got an amazing conductor called Colin Metters. And he was a serious conductor and a serious musician. He did not treat any of us, no matter how stupid or idiotic children we were. Um, he didn't care to treat us that way at all. He treated us as musicians. He led me to understand everything about music, really. You know, so there's, there's a whole language of storytelling, I think, that I understood in learning symphonic music in that orchestra as a teenager. And that is where I think finally I'm understanding how stories work. And it used to be much more vague because it was music only. Um, and then I got into film and television and I just work probably on instinct I've always wanted to just be able to write music that explains everything to people and what you want is you want everybody to take a different explanation from that 
One of the other titles that will be uh, streaming on Disney Plus this year is your entry in the Star Wars canon. Oh, right. Solo, a Star Wars story. What are your memories of working on that? Um, a, a very complicated uh, idea of working on something that you admire the history of so much. Um, a very dangerous thing to do and I think maybe I was just about mature enough to do it um, <laughs> but the key for me was when they they kind of called and said um, you know would you be interested in doing a Star Wars film um, so one eyebrow goes up with that then uh, but and I thought oh what's the but and they said but we think that John will write uh, a, a solo theme for it meaning John Williams John Williams yes now I don't know if they met the but by, like, you're not going to get to write that. For me, that was the attracting force of this. That, that was like, absolutely, if I had any doubts before, now I'm definitely going to do it. Because just to see John work and even maybe watch him work or get close to, <laughs> get close to the, you know, the, the genius and see if I could see myself represented in any way in what he does see see if he's how totally different does he work how what am I missing about my music versus his music this was going to be the ultimate test you know for me just to see how I'm getting on so it was both complex and and glorious and difficult and pleasurable and meaningful and uh, exhausting uh, as you know I think good projects are, are always are did you get to work with him? Was it a collaboration yeah. in any sense? Yes. I mean, I think as much as as much as we could in the sense that, you know, he came in and we spotted the movie together in this room with uh, Ron Howard. I had said to Ron Howard, we must get John Williams for the spotting system because we need his, his story brain. And we're going to get his tunes, but we're also going to get his story brain. And I, and I, I want to watch that in action, and I want that to tell us about how to do this, this film. We looked through the whole movie, and there was these wonderful moments when he knew he needed to, you know, he was going to come up with this theme, and uh, so he would ask us to run back, and he would sit there and think the theme through while, you know, the scene, that scene ran. And I think he was kind of constructing it in his brain as we did it. Uh, and then he went away for a few days, and then I went over to see him first of all at his at his studio, and he uh, he played these themes, two themes, and I, I just thought they were both wonderful. Um, you know, I just couldn't stop smiling. Um, and then Ron went over and he played them to Ron, and Ron loved them. So then we were off and running, and then we went into uh, John Williams demo mode which is very different from the rest of us when when I go into demo mode I'm locked in my small room with a bunch of screens and uh, I turn themes into sort of orchestrations in MIDI um, played by sample libraries that played back by those to try and give an idea for everybody of what it's going to sound like uh, a John Williams demo is you go to Sony Pictures scoring stage with an orchestra of 90 people <laughs> and you record things uh, you can't use them unfortunately we you know we, we were recording in London so even though we were doing the demos here we couldn't use any of it at all we had to be very careful about that but that was the way for everyone to be able to hear his ideas of cues and, and so for one session at Sony he he uh, he took all of these um, 
about six or seven cues he'd sketched out and orchestrated and they were recorded and then there was uh, one um, thematic kind of piece which wasn't a picture um, and so armed with all of that material um, I then took his themes and added them to about four or five that I'd written as well for, you know, for other things we needed and started to develop parts of his themes in hopefully ways that he would like and use them in the correct places for the right reasons, use my themes the right way, underpin my themes with his ostinati and vice versa and just mold it all together I hope um, and he would check in every now and again and see how it was going uh, and oh, nice. for, for me that was as much of a collaboration as I thought I would, ever thought I would get yeah. you know uh, and uh, it was a it was a wonderful experience and it was really I really did that under the auspices of a, of a master and I just discovered that he's exactly the same as every other composer in Hollywood he's just better <laughs> Thanks, John, for taking some time today to talk with us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It'd also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. See you next time. Watch Call of the Wild and Solo A Star Wars Story and listen to the soundtracks wherever movies and music are enjoyed.